welcome to this week's edition of the Taught by Grace podcast. We will explore God's Word to learn how we can live by God's grace and for His glory. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. Here's your host, Noah Hooper. In nearly every novel, film, and story, there is a climactic point that transforms the narrative. There's a problem that enters into the story and changes the narrative from everything seems to be going good to now everything seems to be going bad. The basketball team's undefeated, the hero only knows triumph, and the family enjoys happiness. However, something happens. The team is beaten, the hero is defeated, and the family experiences tragedy. Then, instead of ascending the mountain of victory, life, and peace, they begin descending into the depths of frustration, anger, and sorrow. The climactic loss or tragedy transforms the entire narrative that is rooted in all of these stories, all of these novels and films, but the greatest one of all occurs in Genesis 3. And what happens in Genesis 3, it is not mere fiction, but it is history. It is reality. And there has never been a more drastic shift from peace to hostility, joy to sadness, and life to death than in Genesis 3, in this event in God's Word. For two brief chapters, we have seen the created world operating as God intended for it to operate. But something happens in Genesis 3 that transforms the entire narrative. However, as we will see next week, what happens here is not the end of the story. Yes, this is the climactic event that causes mankind to begin spiraling in a downward process of sin and depravity. But in Genesis 3.15, God promises that a Redeemer will come. And though it seems that sin has won, though it seems that Satan has triumphed, God promises that He will redeem. Nonetheless, before we see that, we must look at the fall. This is one of, if not the most important passage in the book of Genesis. And we see in this that into God's perfect world, sin comes. The world would never be the same. After this, there would be murder, adultery, deception, idolatry, and so on. All because of sin coming into the world. And this tragic event begins like this in Genesis 3 verses 1 through 3. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Genesis 3 begins with the crucial word, now. This alerts us to the fact that there is a change in the historical narrative about to happen. Sin does not enter into the picture simply because Adam and Eve randomly decided to disobey God, but because Satan in the form of a serpent infiltrated the Garden of Eden. Now back to the text. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Verse 1's description of the serpent is important for our study. It says that it was more subtle than any beast of the field. The word subtle means to be cunning, shrewd, or sly. In other words, the serpent doesn't come brashly 
but with precision. He does not come commanding, but questioning. His temptation is rooted in questioning God. Notice this. He's going to first question Eve about something God said. Did God really say this? He does not begin his temptation by saying, you should do this. You should eat of the tree that God forbids. But he first questions Eve. His tactics are to the end of making Eve want to do it. And that's important to note. The serpent does not first tell Eve to do something. Or as she has not yet received her name in Genesis 3, she will at the end of the chapter. But right now, the Bible refers to her as the woman. But we know her as Eve, so we're going to refer to her as Eve. But he doesn't come in and just say, you should do this. But he tempts her in a way to doubt the word of God and question the character of God, and doubt God's care for her, so that she will want to do it, so that she will want to sin. You see, temptation has no power over the tempted unless that person has a desire to do what is being offered. And this is so vital to understand, both as we look in Genesis 3 and for our lives today. Sin does not happen because someone is presented with a temptation. Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness three times, but he didn't sin. Though he was presented with the opportunity to sin, he did not sin because he did not want to sin. It is not the temptation that makes a man sin, but it is when the temptation entices a man that he sins. James 1 gives us this very clearly in verses 13 through 15. Let, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Verse 14 says that every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. In other words, a person is not tempted to sin simply by there being an opportunity. He is tempted to sin because he wants to sin. And that is precisely what Satan does in the Garden of Eden. He doesn't begin with, you should do this. But he begins by presenting a false view of God so that she would want to do it. And his deception to make her want to do this is rooted in his tactic of presenting a false view of God. And he presents a wrong view of God in three ways. In the verses we read a moment ago, he said he questioned the word of God. Then we will see how he questions the goodness of God. And then lastly, we'll see how he promises to give more than God. You'll notice in verses 1 through 3 that he comes into the garden. He says, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Did God really say that? There seems to be that, that Satan has knowledge of what is going on in the situation that God in Genesis 2 had told them, Do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You have access to everything else but this one tree don't eat of it. And he comes in and he begins his temptation by causing Eve to doubt what God said. And that is how temptation always begins. He cast doubt. He cast 
deception upon what it, God has said so that Eve now, instead of thinking, okay, there is one tree that we cannot eat of, but God knows what's best. She now thinks, well, did God really say that? Is that what he really meant? And notice her response in verse 2. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. So Eve responds to the serpent by saying, Well, this is what God said. He said, We are not to eat of the tree in the midst of the garden. Now, in verse 3, there's a bit of dispute about that last part of the verse where it seems that Eve adds to what God said in Genesis 2 that ye shall not eat of the tree. But she says, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now, there's been debate about whether or not Adam added that to it or something like that, but somehow that got added in, and it doesn't seem that that was in the original command of God. But nonetheless, I don't think that's the important part of this right now. But we see that Satan comes in, and he first questions the word of God, but then... He goes to question the goodness of God. You see, God had given Adam and Eve and all you can eat pass to every tree in the garden except one. That was the command. You have access to every tree but that one in the midst. There was one tree amid that garden that he commanded them not to eat from. And as we'll see momentarily, that tree was appealing to the eye and appetizing to the tongue, but God had forbidden it. And it seems that there was nothing physically poisonous in the fruit because Adam and Eve did not physically die immediately after eating it, though they died spiritually in that moment. Why then did God put this tree in the garden? Why did he tell them not to eat the fruit of it? God was giving Adam and Eve a choice. They could enjoy his lavish feast forever or choose their own way and do what they wanted to do and go after the one thing that he forbode. The one thing he was keeping from them. And Satan points this out to Eve. And he tells her that, wait, God is keeping that from you. He begins by questioning, did God really say that? Then he demonizes the character of God. If God really said that, does he not want what's best for you in verses 4 and 5? And the serpent said to the woman, ye shall not surely die. Eve said, well, if we eat of it, we're going to die. But the serpent says, oh, no, you will not die. And let me tell you what will happen. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. He says, you will not die, but let me tell you why God is keeping that one tree from you. You're not really going to die, but here's why. And one of the most key takeaways from this section that remains true throughout history is the way he presents a false view of God. And that is this that we see in verse 4. He tries to cause Eve to think that God doesn't really know what is best for her. He says, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Here was his presentation to Eve, that God is keeping you from becoming what you really need to become. 
And this is how the negative commands of God are always seen. They are an attack on the goodness of God. That is what Satan does here. And those people who look at the negative commands of God as restrictive rather than protective. He does not say, don't steal, don't kill, don't sleep around because he wants to take away all of your fun. He declared that instead for your protection. But we see the commands of God when he says, thou shalt not do this as restrictive. And that is the temptation that Satan brings to Eve. He's saying, God is keeping something from you. God is keeping the best from you. This has always been the ploy of the enemy. He has always used what God has said to say that you don't have to obey because God is keeping something from you. Sinclair Ferguson described this well. He said the lie which by which the serpent deceived Eve was enshrined in a double suggestion that, number one, this father was in fact restrictive, self-absorbed, and selfish since he would not let them eat from any of the trees, and two, his promise of death if they were disobedient was simply false. He further goes on to the heart of the matter to say, this in fact is the lie that sinners have believed ever since, the lie of the not to be trusted because he does not love me, false father, end quote. And that is the heart of the matter of what Satan presents to Eve. Just as in the garden, Satan uses his devices to tempt people to sin by presenting a false view of the father, especially in regard to the negative commands. Notice what Eve missed in this. She missed all of the good trees that God had given them to eat. There was one tree that God said, don't eat of it. But he had given them a buffet of life and beauty to enjoy. And he said to them, he gave them a command, eat of all of those trees. But the one item on the one shelf in the supermarket was off limits. And Satan came to Eve to say that God made that command to them because he didn't really want what is best for them. This is his ploy. He presents Eve with a false view of the character of God. But not only that, he gives her a promise in the latter part of verse 5. For God doth know that in the day ye either, then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. He goes from saying, God doesn't know what is best for you, to saying, I know what is best for you. The conniving serpent plants a doubt in Eve's mind regarding the character of God and strengthens that doubt by saying, God is keeping what is best from you and here's what that is. He gives her a promise that is this, if you'll eat it, you'll be as gods. You'll know good and evil. This is why God did not want you to eat of that tree. He's afraid that if you eat of that tree, you'll be like him, and he can't handle that. He's selfish. That is what the enemy is saying here. And we'll come back to this in a moment, but the serpent always says, I can give you more than you have right now, but he never comes through. But God, he presents more than you could ever desire and gives far more than you could ask or think, but the serpent comes in and he acts like God is not to be trusted when in reality he is the one who is not to be trusted. So we see that Satan comes in and he causes her to question the word of God and the character of God. And he gives her a promise that, 
listen, I know what is best for you. And now we see the deadly feast in verses 6 and 7. And what happened next is intriguing as we turn from the presentation of the meal to the partaking. In verse 6, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Did you see what happened at the beginning of verse 6? And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desired to make one wise, she then saw only after the temptation, she saw that the tree was enticing. She only noticed this, however, when it was presented to her in that manner. And this is how the slithering serpent always entices. He points out the beneficial aspects of what God had prohibited. He doesn't point out the negative effects of sin, but only the positive ones. He only points out the satisfaction of indulging in a sin. And when you see that, you will say, oh, that is good. That seems good. That's exactly what happened here. So Eve eats of the tree. She disobeys the one command of God, says, thou shalt not. And then she gives it to Adam, and he does the same. And what happened after they did that? Did they become as gods? Did it become amazing as they thought it might be? No. In verse 7, And the eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Adam and Eve had lived in innocent bliss until this point. They enjoyed each other's communion in the most perfect marriage to this point. There was no shame at all. Remember verse 25 of chapter 2? The Bible says these two in their marriage covenant, they were both naked and they were not ashamed because in God's plan, in God's original design, there is no room for shame. But now verse 7 tells us that they are ashamed because their eyes were open. They saw that they were naked. They understood. They took of the tree and they had knowledge. But the knowledge was not good because now they knew that they had done wrong and that they had gone against God's design. So the question is, was this better? Of course not. The serpent promised glory, but he gave damnation. He promised power, but he gave weakness. The promises of the serpent were mere mirages. They are never as good as he promised. Instead, they are far worse. And that is exactly what Adam and Eve experienced when their eyes were open. And we'll look at what happens after this in next week's episode because God comes in. Because up until this point in Genesis 3, God is, other than being mentioned and accused, God is not even in the picture. But we'll see how God comes in and he judges sin, but he also makes a promise. And we'll look at that next week. But at the end of this episode, I just want to remind you and encourage you in your day-to-day life to know that this is how temptation still comes today. The narrative of all of history shifted because the enemy came into the garden and said, God doesn't know what's best for you, and that is how you and I are still tempted to sin today. Because when we see God's negative commands and we see that, well, that's sin and that's wrong. And I don't want that because we think I know that God knows what is best for me. But when the temptation comes 
and it says to you, God does not really know what's best for you, then you will look at that and say, well, maybe God really doesn't, and I'm going to go after that. My friend, I encourage you to know this, that the lie of the enemy, as Sinclair Ferguson pointed out, the lie of the not to be trusted because he does not love me, false father, is still a lie today. If you are observant in all the times that you are tempted, it is always goes back to that. It is always an attack on the goodness of God. And my friend, don't buy into the lie. Don't buy into the temptation that God is not good and that God does not know best. My friend, God will give you more than you could ever ask or think. And it is always better than the thing that the enemy offers you see, Satan came to Eve and he said, there is one thing that God is keeping from you and I will give that to you. But Eve missed out on the reality that there was everything else that the enemy could not give her, but that God had freely given her. Don't indulge in the one thing and miss out on all of the other things that God has freely given us. My friend, we have a good father. And he does want what is best for you. So when you are tempted this week, don't buy into the lie of the enemy, but trust that your God is the good Father. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of the Taught by Grace podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you will consider subscribing and leaving a review on whatever podcast platform you listen to it on. So I hope you will join me next week on the next edition of the Taught by Grace podcast.